Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. One 1Password one keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours, I can't even count them all, is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to welcome back Daniel Pink. You may know him from many of his marketing books. The last time he was on this show was when he was here to talk about his last book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And the premise of that book is that not all times of day are created equal, and it's all about doing the right work at the right time or the right tasks or the right actions at the right times of the day based on our circadian rhythms. Well, Daniel is back this time to talk about his new book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And if you've always thought of regret being something that, sure, it has power, but it's power that's negative because regret is a negative emotion, well, you're not wrong. However, Daniel says there is a power to using that negative emotion for positive change. In other words, using regret to look backwards at mistakes and things done or not done, and then using that to move you forward in a positive direction. I was thrilled to have Daniel talk about this topic. I know you're going to have a great time listening in on this conversation. So I'm just going to get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Daniel Pink. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show, Daniel Pink. Daniel, welcome back. Eric, thanks for having me back. I was thrilled when they told me you had a new book out because the last time we talked, honestly, it was about four years ago, and your last book was called When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and I loved that book because- Hey, thanks. It has to do with, you know, not all times of day are created equal, doing the right work at the right time and unpacking when we should be doing things instead of when we are going to be slogging through them. And that was a really helpful conversation to have. And in fact, I'll link up to that one in the show notes for anybody who wants to do a deep dive on it. You know, this far away now, four years out from that book, what's your perspective on that book? I don't want to say, oh, no, I have regrets about that book, you know, the (laughs) the irony of it. Um, Uh (laughs) But, uh, you know, how do you how do you think it stands? I mean, it's been a while. You did the data. You put it out there. I think it resonated. But tell me what you think this far out now. 
thank you for asking about that. I'm actually proud of that book. I think it holds up really, really well. And one of the things that happened in the interim, as you might have heard, is that we had an international pandemic that forced people to be in their houses a lot. And as a consequence, more of us were forced to deal with issues of timing, whether it was how do we configure our day? And there's some guidance in the book about that. But also, how do we deal with episodic timing? beginnings, midpoints and endings. And then, you know, and how do we how do we deal with the struggle when every day feels like Thursday? So, I mean, I think circumstances made the book even more relevant. That's true. I hadn't even thought about that. It, it did strike a certain renewed resonance in the past two years when I was going through moving books on my bookshelf and coming across it again and saying, you know what, we need to revisit this. And in fact, have revisited some of the topics in there in terms of chronotypes and things like that. And, yeah. You know, and, and by the way, you know, and I'll throw this out there as a, a kind of a teaser or a piece of bait for people to go listen to that other episode. I'll say one word, Nappuccino. <laughs> if you want to know what that is, go listen to the episode. It's a very cool tool to use for renewing your energy mid late afternoon, so to speak. So yes, yes, but it was a great conversation. And again, I, I highly suggest people go back and listen to that. It is timely and timeless. No pun intended. Yes. So, and, and the thing is, is I know you do your research and that's why it takes, you know, four years for, in each book cycle. These are the latest two, that one and this new one, but You've got many other books previous. You've been consistently doing the research. I, I'm curious, though, what's the path topic-wise from the last book to this one? How do you go from the topic of timing and time to now the power of regret? Well, I wish I could expose for your listeners the secret strategic whiteboard I have here in my office, but that does not exist. <laughs> uh, you know, here's the thing, Eric. Writing a book is is really, really hard especially if you want to write a good book, a book built on evidence, a book that is rich, that has arguments that are credible, that has stories that are compelling, that has takeaways that are useful. It takes a really long time to do that well, and it's extraordinarily difficult. And so I only pick topics that I am deeply, 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 deeply interested in. And that's not most topics. And so for me, the criterion is less Oh, how does this inexorably go back to the previous book is like, can I tolerate working on it for three years and then living with it for the rest of my life? And most topics don't pass muster. This topic of regret did because it was something that I was wrestling with in my own life. And as I got further into thinking about it and doing some of the very, very initial research, it occurred to me that we'd gotten this emotion completely wrong. Interesting. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is, you know, when someone says, well, by the way, I'll call it out the power of regret. It's called the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. And that's an intriguing title. And especially when we talk about the word power and, mm. you know, everybody, I think everybody can say, oh, yeah, no, the word regret has power to it. But Good point. I, I think that they are thinking of it as a negative power and a negative emotion only. And, you know, we don't deny that there's power to negative emotions, but I think you have this fascinating spin that comes out in the subtitle, looking backward to move us forward. You're saying that this negative emotion can be used as a powerful force for positive change. So yes. there's a unique spin here, which is really cool. And, I, and I'm curious, though, when you initially start digging into this, obviously it hooked you because you decided to write the book and you decided you could dive into the research, live with it, not regret it, ironically. Huh, right, right. And continue down that path. So I'm curious what initially hooked you in terms of 
what was the power of negativity and reversing that polarity, if you will? Yeah, it wasn't so much the power of negativity. It was, it was a little bit more specific than that. It was the fact that, that I had hit a point in my life where I had, you know, to my surprise, a little bit of mileage behind me, but I also had plenty of mileage ahead of me. And I think it's at moments like that, when you start thinking about, hmm, what do I regret? What could I have done differently? And I had uh, one of my, my elder daughter graduated from college, and that was sort of a marker in my life. And I started thinking about my own regrets in college. And you know, if I had been, I wish I had worked harder. I wish I had been kinder. And I started thinking about those. And what's weird, Eric, is that I brought very sheepishly brought those up in conversations with people. And as you say, it's a negative emotion. We would think that people would recoil from that, but instead they lean in. They wanted to talk about it. And that is a very good sign as a writer. If people are leaning in and want to share their story and want to talk about it and want to engage, and so, you know, at some level, you know, there's an old line in behavioral science where all research is me-search. And I think that was sort of the case here, that I wanted to sort of deal with, you know, what regret meant to me and I, how I could use it. And again, the initial, my initial foray, though, in looking at the research said, oh, my gosh, we have gotten this totally, totally, totally wrong. That regret doesn't make us weird. It makes us human. And regret is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it almost comes to, I couldn't help but continue to have this parallel almost, I, I don't know, inside conversation in my head when it came to going through the book and the word regret almost being a substitute for what a lot of people talk about when they talk about the word failure, you know, where it's like, mm. you know, fail fast, fail often in terms of, you know, business gurus teaching things. And not yeah. to say that they're wrong, but I think there's a lot of people that talk about that. And then it's like, okay, let's move fast and break stuff. And it's like, well, we, let's not break stuff we don't have to break, right? It's also the kind of the, the same way that, you know, okay, don't dwell on regrets, but there's nothing wrong with looking at them, analyzing them, using them as a data point like you would a failed or failure, quote, experiment. But the experiment here is lived experience. Right, right, right. It's interesting distinction here, Eric, is that the thing about failure is that failure is failure is a thing. Failing is a verb. All right. It's something you did. Regret is an emotion. Yes. And and it feels really bad. And we have not been taught effectively how to deal with negative emotions. We have this inane philosophy of no regrets as if that is a satisfactory blueprint for living when in fact it's a profoundly stupid and wrongheaded idea. The truth of the matter is that everybody has regrets. I mean, five-year-olds don't because their brains haven't developed, but seven-year-olds do and eight-year-olds do. And, and even developmental psychologists look at the capacity to think counterfactually and experience regret as a marker in our brain's maturation. And beyond that, not having regrets is a sign of a serious problem. The people who don't have regrets are people with lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of their brain. Some people with Parkinson's, some people with Huntington's disease, sociopaths. So not having regrets is a sign that th there's a serious problem here. Everybody has regrets. And the reason for that, and this goes to a lot of what you were saying, the reason for that is that regrets can make us better. Regrets are clarifying. And regrets are one of our most common emotions. But in my view, regrets are also our most instructive emotion. They teach us. And if we learn how to deal with negative emotions, if we learn what to do when we feel a little bit bad about something, we can channel that into making better decisions, solving problems faster, 
not falling through the trap door of cognitive biases, being better strategists and pursuing a life of meaning. And so what I'm trying to do here is reclaim this emotion and say, guys, we're treating it totally wrong. If you use regret as a teacher and you do it the right way, it's going to make you better. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to shopify magic your ai powered all-star sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond again go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond I want to dig into that a little bit, but I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, which, and I'm trying to remember how exactly you described it, but that the negative emotion of regret, I think for a lot of people is going to also be a synonym or a a similarity to the word guilt. Is there a Mm. difference between the word guilt and the word regret for you? I think that there is. They're, They're both negative emotions, no doubt about it. I think that guilt is a subset of regret because- Guilt is often you felt guilty about doing something, usually about actions, not always, but usually about actions. And regrets are actually about actions and inactions, but inaction regrets are more common than action regrets. So I think so I just think that guilt is a subset of it. Let me give you an example mm-hmm. of it. So in doing this research, I did something called the World Regret Survey, where I collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. It's completely nuts. And one of the most common regrets was what, what I call moral regrets, which were, if only I'd done the right thing. And in that category, there were a lot of regrets about bullying. And I think that people who had bullied other people when they were younger. And I think that's about guilt. But there were also plenty of regrets in other categories about people who said, oh, if only I had studied abroad in college, if only I had started a business, if only I had asked that person out on a date, if only I had, you know, and, and those have nothing to do with guilt. Those are about missed opportunities. And so 
guilt, I guess it's just a long-winded way of saying guilt is a component of regret, but it's a subset of it. It almost feels like that guilt is the pure emotional essence of regret, right? It's almost... Yeah, it's at it's some level, it's a kind of regret. It's, yeah. it's mostly often about morality. Mm. And it, it almost seems like it's part of a regret that you, if you were going to slice it up, it's the part of it that makes you feel like you can't change or you you can dwell on it. You can bog yourself down in it instead of like we were talking about earlier with failure being a, um, you know, a data point that regret can be a data point in terms of making better decisions. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with how we treat regret. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, Eric, that, you know, we're not taught very well what to do with negative emotions. I think a lot of times, especially younger people, when they have a negative emotion, they think there's something wrong with them. So they don't know what to do. And so they either ignore it or they wallow in it. And that's a both of those are bad ideas. Negative emotions are functional if we treat them right. And negative emotions are signals. So when you feel that spear of regret, that negative emotion, it is like a, a, a knock on the door. It is a message from the universe. And if, if you're attuned to hearing it, it's going to help you learn and grow. Well, and you, you mentioned that um, people that don't have regrets aren't necessarily acting human. There's definitely something wrong with them. And I think that's definitely the case here where, you know, it's, it's almost one level beyond having regrets means being human. I, I would say it, it's almost if you're dealing maturely with negative emotions, regret being one of them, then that's being truly human. Uh, I agree. It's being truly adult. Yes. Yes. That's a better way to put it. Being a mature adult. (laughs) Although growing into adulthood and all of the, you know, the teenagers who would have a negative emotion and not know how to deal with it. That's part of the growing and the maturity of exactly growing into adulthood. So exactly. You mentioned all the different polls and the research that you've done and some of the commonalities in terms of, you know, major regrets that people have and where those fall. What are the main buckets that really those those foundational regrets fall into? Yeah, so it's a great question. And what I found is that I and others had been looking at it wrong, that we had been putting I I did this, too, in a quantitative survey that I did where I, I did a very large public opinion poll of the U.S. population and had people list their regrets and then put them in categories like education or finance or romance or something. And it was all over the place. And what I realized is that there was something else, I think, much more interesting going on is that beneath the surface, there were these these core regrets that transcended the domains of life. And these four core regrets were were really revealing. And and let me let me reprise an example from that I, that I made earlier. So if you think about it's weird, I have a, I mean, maybe it's not weird. The number of people in the survey who went to college and regretted not studying abroad was vast. I, I was shocked by that. Oh, wow. And so that's an education regret. I got a lot of people who regret having like a crush on somebody or being romantically interested in somebody years ago and never asking them out. That's a romance regret. Then you have people, a lot of people, a lot of people who regret not starting a business, not going out on their own. Okay, that's a career regret. But deep down, in my view, those are all the same regret. It's a regret that says, if only I'd taken the chance. It doesn't matter what the domain is. It's that you are at a juncture in your life. You had a choice. You could play it safe or you could take the chance. And when people didn't take the chance, many times, not every time, they really regretted it. So one of the four core regrets are boldness regrets. If only I'd taken the chance. Another one, as I mentioned earlier, are moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. Those are regrets about bullying. Those are regrets about marital infidelity. Those are regrets about you know, other forms of cheating and even a more complex 
brew of how people conceive of their morality. And the other two regrets are what I call foundation regrets. Those are regrets about people who say, especially around the world, I I shouldn't have smoked. If only I hadn't smoked. Uh, If only I had taken better care of my health. If only I had worked harder in school. If only I had saved money. So those are regrets that essentially, if only I'd done the work. Small choices that compromise later stability. And finally, our connection regrets, which is the biggest category. And these connection regrets are regrets where you had a relationship or should have had a relationship. And I don't mean a romantic relationship. I mean any relationship with another human being. And that relationship comes apart. And they usually come apart in these profoundly undramatic ways. Nobody wants to reach out. They think it's going to be awkward. They think the other side's not going to care. And they're always wrong. And so connection regrets are, if only I'd reached out. And these four regrets tell us something really important. Well, I think I can speak for everybody listening, at least if they're healthy, that they acknowledge that they've had all four of these different types of regrets. I, as I you're mean, saying I have. them, yeah. I mean, as you're saying them, I'm like, okay, I know where that falls for me. I know I, I can, <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and I'd like to say, I think I've had enough time pass slash, you know, backwards looking analysis. Like you say, look backward to move forward in my life on these, but that's not to say that there's not more work to be done. So, uh, yeah, I, I think one of the things, and you know, knowing you and knowing, you know, the, the business world to an extent and, and have written, <laughs> to that in past books, there's a phrase that keeps coming to mind when you're talking about hmm. wishing we'd done something or wishing we hadn't done something. And the phrase is opportunity cost. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, most people will be thinking, okay, what does this mean? And well, we've, we've brought it up on the show many times in the past and essentially opportunity cost, meaning in any point, you know, fraction where you can make a, a decision, you only have one yes to give. And then the rest of the answers are no to all the other right. opportunities at the same time, whether that's use of time, et cetera. And I wonder, does that play into any of these regrets? Does it factor in for you at all in terms of your visibility on this? Oh, uh, I think it's a really interesting point. And I actually think that people tend not to factor in opportunity costs nearly enough when they make decisions, particularly decisions to do something. They don't think enough in the moment of the decision about the opportunities they've foregone. And I think that that ends up gnawing at people later on, that if they factor them in at the point of decision, they're going to be less vexed by them later on. But when they don't, they say, oh, if only I had. And so this this is one reason, a very interesting point. This is one reason why what you see, especially as people get older, is that regrets of inaction, what I didn't do easily outnumber regrets of what I did do, regrets of action. Yeah. And, and I think there's two other factors then you saying that brings two other things to mind is one part of that, I think, and, and, you know, share your perspective here. Part of that, I think, like you said, you know, time you've gotten up there in years, I've gotten probably not as near as you, but I'm still up there too. <laughs> you know, again, we look backwards because we have a lot more backwards to look at, right? And that's Great point. part of it. I think the other thing is that uh, I'm forgetting what the other point was, but that, you know, I think well, the first but one I, stands. But, that's a, but Eric, Eric, that's a really what you just said is an extraordinarily important point. And it comes out big time in the data. And what you see is that and this comes out in, in the American Regret Project, which is the big quantitative survey that I did, is that. When people are, you know, relatively young, the youngest part, you know, I didn't, I didn't interview kids. So the, uh, so the, the youngest participants in the quantitative survey were 18 and the qualitative survey were 16. But one of the things you see in the quantitative survey is that when people are in their twenties, early twenties, especially, they have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. But as people get older, 
if you look at the chart, it's like an alligator opening its mouth. It's like the inaction regrets go way up over time and the action regrets go way down over time. And by the time you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the inaction regrets totally outnumber them. And, and I think that's actually really important. I think it goes to what you were saying that you have more to look back on. But when we look back on, we actually look back on, shoot, I wish I had I wish I had known what I was giving up. I wish I had actually factored in those opportunity costs. And the other thing about it is that action regrets Regrets of action are easier to resolve. So I've got a lot of people who were bullied kids in school and then went back literally 25 years later and apologized to them to try to make amends, to try to undo things. Other times with action regrets, you can find the silver lining. You can at least them. So give me a good example from the database of 16,000 regrets are regrets, I mean, almost all from women saying, oh, I really regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. And so you find a silver lining in it. But inaction regrets are harder to resolve. They're harder to at least. And that's why they stick with us and they gnaw at us for a very long time. You came back around and refreshed my memory on what the two factors were. One was the time passing that that, that you've just got so much back there to look at, but that then it's also filled with that many choices that you've made. That's the second factor. And so, you know, whether those are inaction or action, I guess what I'm curious of is what is a healthy stance? In, in other words, let's, let's lean into the subtitle a little bit here, a little more. Mm-hmm. And let's say, okay, what does the looking back to move forward look like? What's a healthy starting point? And this may look different, I think, in terms of, I mean, you just said it to a certain extent, it's easier for action regrets to be remedied and and make amends versus inaction. Um, So let's start with that one. What are some other ways that like, if if we start there or do you suggest we start there? Actually, let's, let's clear that first. It's a great, so, so, so action regrets are easier. You're right. You're absolutely right. So action regrets, what we can do, one possibility for action regrets is we can undo that. So we did something wrong. We make restitution. We hurt somebody. We try to apologize. You know, we broke something. We fix it. Uh, There's a guy in the book who, got a no regrets tattoo when he entered the military. 14 years later, he regretted that and he had his no regrets tattoo removed. Okay. So we can undo our our action regrets. The other thing we can do, as I mentioned, is we can perform what's called in the fields of both cognitive science and social psychology and even logic, a downward counterfactual. And a downward counterfactual is imagining how things could have been worse. And so you say, at least... You know, I I made this stupid mistake. I did this stupid thing, but at least something good came out of it. The classic example of an at least is so interesting in the research is that when you look at Olympic medalists on the podium, you would think that gold medalists would be the happiest, silver medalists would be the second happiest, and bronze medalists would be the third happiest, and you would be wrong. Gold medalists are totally pumped. Bronze medalists are really pumped, and silver medalists are rarely that happy. And the bronze medalists are saying, at least I got, I got a, a medal rather than a fourth place dude who didn't get anything. And the silver medalist is saying, oh, if only I kicked a little harder, I'd be a gold medalist. So we can do at least. So that's what we can do with action regrets. Inaction regrets and, and many other action regrets, There, it's it's a little more complicated, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Obviously, I think one of the things that makes an inaction regret harder to rectify is it's just this amorphous blob of I wish I'd done it, but I didn't. And now I don't know what factors, you know, if I had dropped that pebble, you know, in the sand, you know, in the water and made the ripples. I don't know what the ripples are. I just have this sense that it was a missed opportunity, in other words. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's a great point. So with all regrets, we can do this kind of three step process that I think is useful for. It's definitely useful for regret. And I think it's actually useful for other negative emotions. And no one ever teaches us how to do this, which is why we either ignore negative emotions and end up diluted, or we end up ultimately getting hijacked by negative emotions and we end up in despair. What we should do is, I like to think of it, the process as inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward. Part of it is, the first step is how we look at ourselves, how we frame the regret force and, and even ourselves, how we look at that. And one of the things that you see is that when we have mistakes and missteps and errors and screw ups and flubs, we're pretty savage on ourselves. We talk to ourselves in a way that is often very cruel in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people. So the big thing here in the initial reframing is something called self-compassion, which is the work of Dr. Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. And self-compassion basically says, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You're not fluffing up your self-esteem. You're not lacerating yourself with self-criticism. You just treat yourself with kindness. Recognize that your misstep is part of the human condition, that you're not the only one with a regret like this. And also recognize that this moment of regret does not fully define your life. It's just a moment in a long life. And that can, that can ease a lot of the initial pain and allow you to move on. So that's inward. Outward. There is such a case for disclosure, for disclosing our regrets. Retrospectively, it's not surprising to me. It was surprising at first. It's not surprising now that with basically no publicity, we had 16,000 people around the world offer up their regrets to a complete stranger. All right. So what, what, you know, what's, what's going on there? Uh, with disclosure, there's an unburdening. Okay. But the other thing, and you hinted at it very astutely, Eric, is that these negative emotions are, I can't remember the exact word you used, but you used something like, you said blobby or abstract amorphous. or nebulous. Amorphous. Okay, there you go. This is exactly right. Negative emotions are amorphous. That's a better word, actually. Negative emotions are amorphous. They don't have a form. They're, they're blobby. And when you disclose regrets, when you actually begin the process of converting that amorphousness into a form, the form of words, it makes them less menacing. It takes it from abstract to concrete, from menacing to understandable. And so what you see is that when people talk about their regrets, even when they write about them privately, that eases some of the burden and allows them to begin the sense-making process. And so there's an argument for dealing with regret by writing about it 15 minutes a day for three days. It makes the, the emotion and the incident much less menacing. What's more, if you disclose to other people, we tend to overstate the negative reaction we'll get woefully. There's 30 years of behavioral science that says that when we disclose our, our mistakes, our vulnerabilities, people don't think less of us. They think more of us. And so there's an argument for disclosing outward. And then finally, the last one is moving forward. You have to draw a lesson from it. Regret is a teacher. And so the way that we learn from our regrets is we take a step back. It's something called self-distancing. We tend to be pretty crappy at solving our own problems because we're too enmeshed in it, in the details. We're not bad at solving other people's problems. So in a sense, what you want to do is distance yourself and think about your own life as if you're somebody else. So you can do things as weird as it sounds, like talk to yourself in the third person. So if you're reckoning with a regret, you, Eric, should say to yourself, not, oh, what should I do? What should Eric do? In business, there's there's a Andy Grove technique where you say, Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, 
where you, you say, okay, what would my successor, if my successor was about to make this decision, what would she do? Uh, there is, I think, one of the best decision-making tools around, which is to say, what would you tell your best friend to do? So when you take this process, you basically forgive yourself, treat yourself with kindness. You disclose to make the amorphous into a form and begin the sense-making process. And then you actually extract a lesson from it. Regret is really good for you. You learn and then you do better the next time. Man, it, it sounds like by getting this clarity in, in, in terms of, you know, identifying what the regret is, what the emotion is by getting some distance from it in terms of the compassion and, and deflating the emotion being something that's in the atmosphere as you're looking at this data that by identifying it, removing the, you know, I guess lowering the temperature might be a better way to put it mm -hmm, around mm -hmm. it. And then even othering it in terms of, well, what would I say to somebody else to deal with this? It seems like there's a lot of healthy, mature decision-making that can be made to rectify from this. Amen. Amen. But we have to do that. We have to yes. do that. And, and, and unfortunately, the message we're getting is not that very sensible message that you just articulated so well. The message that we're getting is no regrets. You shouldn't have any regrets. Never look backward. Regrets are a sign of weakness. And that's just, that's, that's, that's delusional and debilitating, to put it mildly. I guess what irritates me, this philosophy of no regrets, people express it as if like, oh, look how courageous I am. I have no regrets. And that's, that's nonsense. Courage isn't saying you have no regrets. Courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. Yeah, that mentality of plowing forward without looking back it almost leaves you with less of a life. Actually, I'm not going to say Bingo. almost. I'm going to say it yeah. does leave you. It does leave you with less of a life because totally. you haven't analyzed the choices properly. And so you're not making good ones plowing forward with, quote, no regrets anyway. No, what you're doing is what you're doing in a sense is you're sort of, you know, like little kids who um, put their fingers in the ears and sing la, 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 la. You're actually denying reality. When if you actually treat reality like a grown up and again, you know, not ignore it, but not wallow in it either, you're missing out on instruction. You're missing out on clarification. I mean, even if you sort of anthropomorphize regret, too often we see regret as a meaningless stranger. OK, so we don't even notice it. We say, ah, oh, whatever, there's somebody I've never seen before walking across the street. I'm just going to look the other way and try to forget him. Or we look at them as like St. Peter at the gate passing final judgment on us. And what we should do is, you know, see regret as, oh, regret as a teacher. Here's a teacher with something to teach me. Yeah. Like every single one of those, again, opportunities where there's a cost. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's so much more in the book to dive into. I mean, we've oversimplified here to a certain extent for the sake of time, but that's the point of podcasts sometimes, right? And, and by the way, it's a productivity podcast. I don't want to take too much of your time. I just want to call attention to something that could make a huge productivity impact which is dealing with regrets in a mature way. But there's so much more in the book. I mean, a lot of people who listen to the show are thinking of ways that they could do some of the work that we just talked about, again, in an oversimplified way with journaling or counseling or masterminds or just good counsel of trusted friends. And obviously there's all of that and much more yeah, in the book. But uh, let me give you, I mean, I'll get, you know, like, I don't think you need counseling for this. I mean, I think I think I think there are plenty of people who need counseling when they have a very serious problem. What we need is we need a few tools to deal with negative emotions because they're part of our lives. And so let me give you two things that I think could be useful. 
So one thing that I like is, is something called a failure resume, which is the brainchild of Tina Selig at Stanford University. And a failure resume, okay, we all these resumes, they veritably glisten with our accomplishments and our general overall awesomeness. A failure resume is you make almost the converse of that, which is that you list your failures, your setbacks, your screw ups, your flubs, your mistakes. But you don't stop there. You list them. Then in another column, you list what lesson you learned from them. And then you list what you're going to do next time. That's a very, very helpful exercise. I've done it myself. It was it was one of the best things I've done, actually, because it taught me that some of my flubs and failures were just like life happens. You know, I wasn't it wasn't necessarily because I did something horrifically wrong. It's just like sometimes things don't work out. But in other cases, I found myself over and over again making two mistakes that this failure resume surfaced, and I've tried to avoid making them again. Another example is what I call regret circles. And those are fairly simple things. You get five people together and each person goes around, shares a regret, and then together you work out what you learn and what to do about it. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, you know, like when I said mastermind, I think that's one of the things where yeah. that's a that's a great place to do that. It's a regret mastermind. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you've got a safe, trusted council of people that you can disclose, identify and assess and move on. I mean, it's great. Exactly. Uh, there's so much more in the book, but I want to point people to it. And it's out now, by the way. So perfect timing <laughs> to go back to the old book. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's always a good time of day to read this book. Let's just put it that way. Hey, um, thanks. But yeah, I would love for you to maybe point people to where is best for them to find out more and maybe get on a newsletter, all that, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Well, just go to my website, uh, www.danpink.com. Uh, I got a newsletter. I got all kinds of free resources, all kinds of information about the book, everything you need. Awesome. Daniel, it's been awesome talking with you. And honestly, I can't wait to see what you write about next. Actually, I assume you have some inklings of that, but we won't go further into that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's one case where I really do not feel, Eric, like looking forward. (laughs) Nice. Awesome. Well, Daniel, uh, open invitation. Come back next time. I would love to talk more. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Pink. I know I did. And unfortunately, I'll probably have to wait another four years, and so will you, for him to come back on the show with a new book. But that's okay, because each time he comes, he delivers. If you had not listened to his previous episode, I've linked up to that in the show notes. I've also linked up to the Power of Regret book in the show notes as well, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider doing me a favor of sharing this episode with somebody you know needs to hear it? Think of that person, click the button in the show notes to share it, or the button to share in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening right now. Send it to that person. Let them know you care about them enough to share this conversation with them. Thank you so much for doing me that favor. Thanks for sharing, and thanks for listening. And I will see you next episode.
Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.